Every successful founder has to also be a great salesperson. Because if you can't articulate the value of what you're building to investors and customers, you're probably never going to get this off the ground. But it's hard. How do you build a sales team? How do you find the right businesses? And how do you do that very little money? Well, at the beginning, you need to make it super efficient. And the best way to do that is sales automation. And luckily, today on the show, we have Anthony Collias, who is an absolute black belt at sales automation. He's the CEO and founder of Stasher.com and TreePoints. He's an incredible guy. And we have a really great discussion today around sales automation, but also around how to make your team as efficient as possible. And we have a good debate in this, which I think you'll enjoy. So I hope you enjoy the show. Lots of great value, lots of great tips. We're still about sales automation, but help people understand in the simplest possible term what that means. Okay. I think the simplest way of describing it is that when people often think about sales, especially if you put like sales in a job title, I think the first thing people think of or, or imagine is like a room like Wolf of Wall Street with people with phones. Uh, and don't get me wrong, like there's a place for cold calling, but that's that's kind of what people are often imagining. They're imagining this kind of direct outreach. Um, and I I totally think that there's, a, there's obviously an important place for relationship building. But as more and more people get familiar with, with uh, SaaS companies and their kind of typical structure, you know, they have SDRs and uh, SAEs and, you know, kind of up, um, you kind of realize increasingly it's just so much more efficient to find processes to reach people at scale rather than uh, have an excellent salesperson make a ton of calls. Um, and I mean, in our own experience, we run a business where, you know, we run a business uh, where we are live in 300 cities around the world. Um, and actually, we, we'd spent a lot of time sending people actually on physical trips because it's, it's short-term storage. We would have people go to certain locations, key locations that we were struggling to get places in. And they would literally go door to door, like talk to businesses or we'd find local contractors. Um, and then COVID hit our travel business. Uh, and we just kind of realized that we needed to reassess the way that we reach people because we literally couldn't send people anywhere. And it was like an impetus where we were forced to refine this kind of remote and scalable process. And then we actually realized it was a way better process anyway. The returns were much higher. Like one person who can find an effective way to reach a thousand people all over the world in a couple of weeks um, is way better return than, you know, sending people to five, 10 different locations all over the world. We're trying to find contractors and manage them. Yeah, that makes absolutely sense. And look, as a um, 7,000 year old sales guy mm -hmm. who literally worked in a boiler room, um, <laughs> you know, I can appreciate how inefficient that really is. Like there are, there's, there's absolutely a time where you, when you have to, you do have to pick up the phone. You have to spend a lot of time tailoring an email to a really important person. Yep. And that's really in the world of enterprise SaaS, right? Like a big enterprise sale where, it's yep. a long strategic process where you're just chipping at it. You've got to get seven decision makers at least before you get anything to happen. It's a very different thing. But if you're selling a lower ticket yep. product and it's a bit more transactional, there's definitely a place for it. So I absolutely agree. And I think as a founder myself, and a lot of the founders I speak to, loads of people forget about sales at the beginning. Mm. What they do is they come into a business. I'm sure you can you know, attest to this is people come into a business at the very beginning and they start their company and they're like, okay, what I'm going to do is I'm going to build my product. It's going to be amazing. I'm then going to go and raise some money and then I'm going to get some salespeople to come in and do the sales for me. Yeah. yeah or yeah. I'm going to spend some money on some Google ads. I might do a bit of PR. Yeah. Uh, don't get me wrong. Those are amazing things to do. You should be doing it. Yeah. But nothing is a better thing to fund your business with other than the best thing to fund your business with is customers' money. Yeah. That's the best way to grow your business, full stop. But talk to me practically, how do you, I'm sorry, just to add to that, the reason that is, is because it's non-dilutive, right? Yeah. Okay. And you can grow that, okay? Yeah. yeah. Um, without having to go and beg for more. 
So talk to me about your, when we, you talk about sales automation, give me some practical examples of like what actually that entails yeah. and how you would do it. Yeah. Okay. Some, some specific tips. I mean, if you're a founder, even if you're not actively trying to sell your product, there is no good reason to not have, you know, in, in a way that doesn't piss people off, you need to think about how you're targeting it and what your messaging is. But there's no reason to not have some automate, automation happening in your LinkedIn, right? Because ultimately, extra connections mean that when you post, more people see it, more likely to interact, more likely to get people in their network to see it. Um, so, I mean, a specific one that you can use there is something like Phantom Buster. Uh, and, you know, there, there'll be many other similar technologies as one we happen to use, um, where you can basically, you know, put in a search for something relevant, it could be founders in London or something like that, right? Uh, and then it will kind of automate sending out uh, at a rate that won't alert LinkedIn uh, invites that you can tailor with some parameters and stuff, right? And I know on the one hand, on the one hand, you know, you know, you see the odd post where people are like, oh, I hate when people send me automated stuff. But as long as you're not sending like aggressive sales emails, you know, we all get the get the ones where you know you you can tell someone's not written that by hand, but you're you're still like this person looks relevant, so I'll accept this invite. Uh, there's no reason not to do it. It just grows your network effortlessly rather than you clicking through like your homepage and clicking through that. Um, less sales, but I mean, potentially sales at a higher level. Other one that we look at a lot is, I mean, we've started using internally Apollo, uh, really great sales tool. Uh, even on the free version, you can actually send a ton each, uh, each week of, of emails and you can actually target like different businesses, different sectors. Uh, no reason not to do it. All that you'll do is basically create little lists according to these searches. Uh, you can import people's LinkedIn contacts and then you can just set up simple flows where it's like, send this email follow up this email X number of days afterwards. I don't want to teach people how to suck eggs, but like, you know, because to anyone who does this stuff or, you know, has integrated something into a CRM or has paid a CRM consultant to come and set up Salesforce or, or whatever else for them, this will sound incredibly obvious. But sometimes when you're an early founder and maybe you're product focused or something, this stuff isn't obvious uh, and you don't know to look for a solution. Um, but yeah, those are two great softwares that we use. Uh, and then obviously Zapier can kind of tie everything together if you want to, use any CRM where you have something in, in different slots and deals, you can also automate that in HubSpot. So I, I couldn't agree with this more. I think, um, so first and foremost, an important thing for everyone to know is that there is no, there's nothing wrong with reaching out to someone with a product if you can genuinely add value to that person. Yeah. You should never feel embarrassed. If your product it doesn't add value, then be embarrassed. But yeah. if you are genuinely rethink helping... Rethink your job. <laughs> yeah, rethink it, yeah. But if you like with Stasha or TreePoints, you have a genuine solution to help genuine people. And everyone who's listening to the show, hopefully in their building product, will have a genuine problem that they're solving. Yep. So you should never feel embarrassed about reaching out to someone to try and solve that problem and add some value and help them out with their problems. You should never be embarrassed about that. Mm -hmm. And I think they should never be afraid to, to connect with someone on LinkedIn because what does that person have that is so sacred that you can't connect with them? Yep. Yeah. What does that person have? And also like, I tell you that the worst thing they can do is tell you to fuck off. Yeah. Yep. In fact, literally, I sent out a mail shot the other day and someone did tell me to fuck off. Yep. And I'm going to put a post on LinkedIn about it and shame them. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but like, I think it's that it's so rare. Most people are just like, unsubscribe me. Yeah. Don't yeah. email me. So what? That's cool. Yeah. Like, That's I'm, I've lost nothing. Yeah. I have a, this is not about me, but I'm going to share it. I raised um, half a million dollars mm. through marketing automation, through email automation. Mm. Um, I used um, GMAS, which is a, yep. an, yeah, a, yeah. a Apollo competitor. But that whole thing where you talk about like for me to send a thousand emails to investors would have taken me, yeah, yeah. For me to then send the seven hundred follow ups to the people that 
didn't reply or whatever would have taken yep. me god knows how long like i'm building a business same as you are like you can't do it that's a really yep. great great form of um yeah. marketing what makes everyone do it so yeah and and what you said earlier is actually true where like just use some common sense like an example of what you described there right let's say you have your list of a thousand investor contacts right take the top 50 well okay take yeah take the top 100 um you know the very top 25 make a, a genuinely personal email maybe right the bottom 75 maybe make a slightly more tailored but semi-automated email the bottom 900 send an automated email like right. apply some logic to it but um but totally like you, you can't send a thousand emails and and the truth with a lot of sales stuff is that you you have to take a lot of swings to get hit you do yeah what's your um what are your tips when you're actually emailing those people like what do you make sure what do you put in that email to make sure you get a response well before thinking about specifically in the email one thing that we often do is uh, and this is actually you said like oh what's the worst if someone says no um you do need to be careful with your domain for for emailing right so one thing that we'll often do is we'll set up like a side domain so it'll be like the .co.uk instead of the .com that we send initial outreach from um, or, or like a slightly different version of the uh, email or .eu or something like that. Um, if we're doing that, it'll just be because we're, you know, trying to, trying to be safe. If we're doing like mass outreach, that'd be like the most junior members of the team reaching out to like thousands of independent hotels uh, where there's a risk of people kind of, you know, not liking it, unsubscribing, reporting a spam, stuff like that um so that's one practical tip and actually you mentioned gmas gmas has a great email warming up tool um where what they do is they basically take everyone who signed up to this tool and send each other like random bits of emails that they like respond to uh so they'll use your email to respond to other people's emails and stuff but then because it's making it more active the percentage of like non-ignored emails goes up so it's a good way to like warm up your domain right that's actually a practical tip that a lot of people miss like you should slowly ramp up the amount that you do it because if you create a new domain and send a thousand emails in the first day, very likely to get like flagged as spam on like uh, email filters. Yeah, nice. Yeah. That's a good point. And that's an absolute killer. Yeah. Right, if it's going in there. Yeah. You said specific copy. Honestly, I remember I was talking to a friend of mine who was leading a sales function at a SaaS company. Uh, and, and I remember I specifically asked him, should you do long emails or short emails or, or, or different uh, headlines and stuff? Uh, one thing was, don't use the tricks that annoy people where like, I remember I saw, I had one the other day personally where it was like, um, the, the headline was like interested in our company's name. Uh, and I opened, I was like, what does, what does that mean? Is it like, it makes it sound like they have something to give me. Yeah. And then I opened the email and I was like, okay, it's actually an, a sales email. And then I kind of resented it. Yeah, sure. Um, but, you know, speaking to that friend who ran the SaaS company and it was like long email, short emails, he was like, generally he found that that didn't make that much of a difference. Um, he found like brief and direct subject lines um, that highlighted like, do you have a problem with X tended to work really well. But I mean, you know, rather than saying like your subject line should be this, the more important thing and the, the thing about the mindset of sales automation is that you become more of a process architect and rather a more, m more of a process architect than a, um, you know, doer of things, if you understand what I mean, by which I mean, you should be testing those different subject lines and then just going with what you find works better for your audience. Like try long emails, try short emails. Um, do double check, like for example, there's some just practical things like don't put images in, more likely to get flagged as a, as a spam or, or filtered from people's inboxes. Um, links, I can't remember off the top of my head, but double check if links do the same thing. Uh, but otherwise, like the answer is test. Like the whole, the whole 
point with these things is um, can I find ways to test this? And also, I think a lot of people, like if you're a founder who's semi-technical, um, there are some workarounds for this, but like look into whether you can kind of combine your ability to write some script, uh, to do some scraping. So we've done this ourselves. Uh, whether you can scrape some, in, in the case of working in travel, can you scrape stuff from google.travel? Uh, can you scrape stuff from booking.com? Uh, and then feed that in. Otherwise, you know, there's lots of independent scraping tools. Like maybe one of them can suit as well. Um, but yeah, regarding copy, try different things and as a process, improve it over time. Yeah, nice. I um, I have some theory on this as well. Um, as a, it's definitely an obsessive subject for me. The um, if you are sending an email, you need to make it look like it's an email from a person. Yeah. Yeah. Like don't don't tart it up. Don't make it look like it's a. a it's a newsletter or anything like that because like the truth is as soon as that comes through you know that's the problem don't send it from mailchimp don't send it from active campaign they're for newsletters and yep. email automation sorry um what you need to do is like make it look like an email from someone specific yep. um use one of the services that literally sends from your email yeah exactly yeah that's what i say send a native email sender like apollo or gmas the other thing as well is that there are three things that have to happen in every single email and people forget this so often. First thing is it has to gain their interest straight away. You've got to have that hook straight away. If you're not giving someone something within the first line or, 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 or two lines that is going to capture their interest to read the rest of the email, you're not mm. going to do it. You're just not going to do it because it's not coming from their boss Yeah, where you force yourself to read it. Something they don't know. Mm. Second of all, add some credibility. I've, this is interesting. Is it worth carrying on reading because this person's validated it? Mm. And then finally, you've got to have an ask in there. You can't just send someone an email being like, yeah. hey, yeah, yeah. this is Tree Points. We're amazing. Yeah. 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 It, it really helps to have, you know, something, I mean, like something that's not aggressive, but, you know, gives people a clear, a clear, you know, response is like, are you the right person or can you point me in the direction of the right person? When you end like with a question like that and it's non-aggressive, you know, a lot of people would be like, you know, it's say they don't want to deal with it, but they think it sounds kind of interesting. They will actually point you to the right person. We get that a lot. 100%. I really like that. In the current climate, marketing is hard. But do you know what isn't hard? Making sure you never miss an episode of your favourite podcast. So tap the follow button on your podcast and you'll never miss out on the latest episodes of Unicorny or Marketing Difference. You can even go back and listen to our back catalogue of amazing episodes. If you do that, please leave us a review. It would mean so much. So. And on the LinkedIn thing, so do you have a lot of... LinkedIn is a really funny one. So um, I'm a huge fan. And I, I think anyone who isn't... If you're a founder and you're not spending time on LinkedIn, then you're, 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 you're not spending your time effectively because that's where you showcase who you are to people who will probably... If you're, if you're B2B, you're buyers. That's where your crowd is. Mm. Uh, if you're trying to raise money, that's where a lot of your crowd is. If you're trying to employ people... That's where a lot of your crowd is. Like there's so many audiences there that you can tell yourself to. Mm -hmm. Now for you, like what success have you had with it? And what have you learned about your experience there in terms of automating that process? Because you're automating connections. Yeah. Are you automating like messages and DMs and stuff? No, just connections. Right. Just connections. Um, but the main thing is growing the connections actually just helps with the audience for your posts. It's kind of synergistic. Uh, I definitely agree that like if you're a founder, it's... It's annoying because if like I, I personally am not into a lot of like social media culture, but like LinkedIn is actually such an interesting space because because it's for business, people tend not to be trolls <laughs> uh, because there's kind of like the, the, the business shame. Uh, I, I was in like, you know, people are being like, OK, this is a place for with professional decorum. Granted, it's 
creeping into like social media space you get people like like i don't know like gary v or whatever like yeah but, but, yeah. Uh, but i know that you're active on linkedin for example like if you're a founder you absolutely should be posting and then it's just kind of synergistic where you're getting more people who are seeing your content liking it their their audience will see it as well people connected to them um and i know that like a lot of the stuff that we've done has actually ended up um you know by which i mean overall business projects so first of all launching tree points uh we launched the syndicate uh our we do a philosophy podcast like all these little side projects hugely helped by being able to post on linkedin and we have an audience of people who either like you know are interested in us or even just you know personally know us friends of friends things like that um kind of find us through that it kind of becomes our acquisition channels for a lot of those uh, and it definitely helps that we've expanded the pool of people who see it by widening our number of connections beyond what we could achieve just manually adding people yeah i love that I think also like, you know, you, if, you, if you have the ability to grow a specific audience and you can do that in a way on LinkedIn that you can't in anything else, you know, you can specifically, I want people who are in this sector, in this location, mm. this size business, that it's so specific, the audience you can grow. Mm. Why wouldn't you take advantage of that? Um, personally, we raised um, uh, one million pounds through a cold outreach from someone who reached out to me based on a post that I did on LinkedIn. You know, mm. like it was, people think it was passive. I spent months preparing for that, like making sure I had the right people following me, making sure I yeah. had the right content, yeah, yeah. make sure I connect with the right people. I just connect, connect with a ton of VCs and then put, yeah, there's a the science to it, but that's, that's sales automation. Like that's what you're doing, right? You're, yeah. building, you're building that process. I really buy into that. So what do you do? So the next question is around um, when you're talking about that sales automation mm. is what do you do in terms of follow-up? So, you know, you start with that initial outreach, you send out the, the follow-up in, in, in three weeks time or three days time, or whatever. Mm. I think the magic number six. Mm. Um, but the, what do you do then? What, what are you doing then to keep that, that sales automation flowing all the time? Mm. And the other question I have for you is where are you getting the data from? Now you mentioned it briefly about scraping, but you know, as, as a founder, I can't afford to go out and buy, you know, uh, a marketing database like where do i get these emails where do i get these people that i'm contacting how do i start from from scratch right so some of these tools in terms of getting the data uh, i mean some of these tools like apollo actually help you get the the contacts of people uh either directly they have their own database that's linked to their email sending service uh, or you can scrape from people's linkedin profiles uh, so you can put something in like people who work in this company and you get a bunch of contacts or literally go to their linkedin and scrape that um also, I mean, from our perspective, um, a little biased because we work with hotels a lot, relatively easy to find directories of hotels, you know, booking Google and, do, and scrape them. Um, otherwise, it can be a little bit harder. I mean, your best bet is probably those sort of built-in ones with tools like Apollo. More expensive tools, which won't be appropriate to people that we're talking, probably talking to here, would be stuff like Zoom Info. You can get really like detailed information through stuff like that. It's just that their contract value is probably doesn't make sense for you. Use a simpler tool like Apollo. Um, but yeah, I mean, really, those tools help you do it. Um, and otherwise, scraping in LinkedIn. Yeah. yeah. Sorry, otherwise, there's no magic bullet. Yeah, no, okay. yeah I agree with that. I think um, another way I, yeah, we did it, I hired someone on Fiverr to do it for me. Yeah, and it was like 35 cents a contact, mm. you know. So, you know, that, that was 100 contacts, wasn't it? It was 35 bucks, right? not a huge amount of money you know yep. uh, provided you're very very descriptive over what you want yeah don't don't just say can you go and get me vc contacts it's not going to happen mm. you've got to be really specific okay so moving along slightly um you talk a lot about the hidden costs of hr um 
now through retention and and the, the and the hiring of people and it is it is it is real it's a real cost mm. what advice do you have around well around those areas because ultimately yeah. like every company and we bang on about a show all the time like a company literally means a group of people mm. and so every company is only as good as the collection of the employees it has we yeah. could all be doing the, the same fucking thing it wouldn't matter it's just the fact that you know, what we're building doesn't matter it's just the fact that we have a great team yeah which differentiates between success and failure what are the things you've learned in that area and what is your advice for founders and mm. hiring managers and so forth yeah i think one that's difficult because it it kind of clashes with the kind of classic um you know hustle hard all this sort of stuff is uh try and set like reasonable working hours so we we set like 10 to 6 uh, and we tend to all take a communal lunch for about an hour in the middle of the day. Um, but set those hours and try and as religiously as possible stick to them and set an example as a founder. Uh, if if you have to do extra work, you know, ideally go home and do it. Um, the reason I say that is is two or threefold. One, um, I strongly believe that in in reality, people don't have more than four hours of extremely focused work in them. The other thing is that if you think about someone's working week, say it's about 35, 40, 40 hours, right? From say zero to 20, you're getting more productive on the average hour because the first 20 hours, you're probably just kind of keeping up with what's going on, right? 20 to 30, 40, you're probably roughly the same. And then 40 onwards, you're probably less productive for each extra hour because that's at the point where you're starting to like eat into the other things that make you happy and basically are keeping you at a sustainable rate, avoiding burnout. Uh, the problem is as well that you're not just making each incremental hour uh, less productive. That means that you're bringing down the productivity of your total, uh, of your average hour. Sorry. So, I mean, you know, if you have someone who works as an extreme example, 100 hours a week, like how, how productive do you think even, and they're doing that week on week on week, how productive do you think their 20th hour is compared to if they were doing 40 hours a week? Mine right. is equally productive all the way through. <laughs> all the way through. With, with sounds, the exception of Tom. <laughs> 100 hours sounds like quite a lazy week to me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but I, I think the, the thing about this framework is that it's so tempting to just push people to go harder. And the part, the part of that that can then feeds into these hidden costs is where you start to push people and they start to get burnout. You start to increase the rate at which you're losing people. And I feel like as businesses, we're just really bad at actually accounting for the cost of losing someone six months, a year, maybe several years sooner than we may have needed to, assuming that they were someone you wanted to retain, right? Uh, and also accounting for actually the costs of finding people. So, I mean, it's very easy to account for like the recruitment cost if you have a recruiter, right? Yeah. But if you think about the typical person you hire, like most people will want to have at least one meaningful length interview with a senior exec probably the CEO, right? That's a very valuable hour lost. Probably multiple hours with somewhere in the middle between your junior people and, and, and that person. And then also, uh, you know, probably some screening time with uh, someone junior. But then on top of that, all of the costs of like whatever platforms you're using to find them, uh, the effort of screening the CVs you don't even bother talking to, like all of those costs add up. Uh, not to mention, you know, say you do lose this person six months, a year, two years before you wanted, even if you do manage to replace them, even if you replace them for someone who's better value, that means you're out of that role of someone filling that role for like six months. And ultimately, you know, sometimes that happens and you realize that maybe that person's role wasn't that critical, but, you know, really, you know, you shouldn't have people where, where that's the case. It's a good, 
it's a good sense check like if this person disappeared what would happen if the answer is anything other than uh you know replace them then that role probably shouldn't exist i agree with you i think it's that's really interesting you say that um there's two things i wanted to respond to that with actually because so first of all one a hidden cost we don't talk about enough when it comes to employees is the time that they're shit before you lose them <laughs> like you know and so if you have someone who's um say you have someone for a year yep. okay and you lose them on month 12 and they start on month one yeah month one they're not doing anything of any value no they're actually taking time from other people take time from other people but then from month nine to 12 they're not doing anything of value because people don't quit when they start doing badly no, they take they clock a, out mentally. they clock out they do less work they you know, you as a company try might to might be looking for another job. Exactly. Yeah. You put a performance improvement plan in place. That's another month. And then you make a decision. You've got a month's notice. So mm. you've lost three months. So actually out of the course of that year, you haven't got a lot of time that mm. actually you're getting much out of those people. Um, and it's something that people are told, that's eight months. You know, it's, it's not, it's not a good number. Mm. Um, so it is important that you, you're aware of that all the time. You've got to accept that that's going to be the case. So you want that middle stretch to be as long as possible. But the, the the other area you want to talk about, I think that people don't talk about enough, and I'm glad you did, mm. is that concept of rest. And people need to talk about that more, that athlete mindset. Yep. If you went into, a, if you had a, um, what's your sport? You're a rugby guy. Was a rugby guy. Now a lot of weightlifting. Fine. Really? Okay. <laughs> yeah. But if you're a, Fitness and weightlifting. If you, have, uh, if, if you had a rugby player and you said to them, okay, I want you to train as hard as you possibly can mm. all day, mm. five days a week and then take two days off, you'd be like, are you fucking shitting me? Mm. Yeah. I'll train for two hours in the morning. I'll rest. I'll, and then I might do an hour in the afternoon. Yeah. And then that's basically what the English team do, right? So yep. They do like three hours, three, four hours a day. But, and it's not high intensity the whole time because the whole point is like work plus rest equals success. You need yep. time to recover. Yet for some reason in the business, we're like, we have to work all that all the, all the time. Yeah. Also, we have this weird assumption that I know we talk a lot about flexible working at the moment and, you know, I don't, it's very rare that you come, we have one company that genuinely is flexible. They're like, oh, we're remote first. Yeah, mm. it's not flexible. Yeah, that means you have to work from home first. Or, yeah. Yeah, exactly. yeah. You can work from home three days a week. Again, that's not flexible. But the, is the hours and people work. It's interesting you say about 10 to 6. That's an interesting time concept there. Mm. I just think like, because I am, I'm an early bird. I'm up at five. Yeah. Mm. And um, if someone said to me, but then if I said someone, do you want a meeting at half five in the morning? If I said that's Rosie, I would use her. She'd lose her mind. <laughs> yeah, she, mm. yeah, you've got to say some people work at different times. But I think it's, and I think that you as a person have to know yourself first and when you work well. Yeah. I think it is a responsibility of the business to be aware of that. But it's also a responsibility of the individual to say to their managers, like, yeah. mate, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think that the sports one is a good analogy because I was talking to someone actually in the specific context of sport but it actually applies to work as well. Where like, I know too many people who, for example, uh, don't take rest days, right? Uh, they, they, which is, you know, anyone who knows anything about, uh, about like performing well in sports knows it's the dumbest thing. Um, and the, 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 the thing I always say is when you think about like ancient slaves on Greek warships or like people in gulags, right? They're working really hard all day. Do you think of like physically <laughs> yeah, imposing people? Exactly, no, yeah. absolutely no, not. No, you don't. Uh, and it's the same, it's, it's kind of by analogy, the yeah. same for like the kind of, you know, when you, when you think of someone working a hundred hours a week, do you think of someone who's like barely alive or do you think of someone who's like high performer? Yeah. yeah. Um, and I think, I think as well, like the, remember there's a study about sleep that I thought was really interesting uh, and, and also scary, which was that um, when people have less sleep, right, um, their performance declines, right? 
The scary thing is that the perception of their performance doesn't decline, right? So you become shit and you don't realize that you're becoming shit. Yeah. Right. Uh, and I mean, you know, the number of hours, it, it depends a little bit on your culture and stuff. But like, you know, if you do reach the point where it's like 80 to 100 hours, it's hard to see how that is possible without impacting your sleep. Assuming that you're, you know, people need like at least a couple hours to sort their life stuff uh, and a couple hour, an hour or two to like wind down before sleeping. It's hard to fit that in if you're working, say, 100 a week. Yeah. Uh, so you are inevitably going to be lacking sleep. I like that. I think it's really good. So I think the, the key message there is, yeah, make sure that you talk to your employees and work with them. Okay, so we're probably going to fall out here because I know yeah. that you are, I am a strong believer in unlimited holiday. And I'm yeah. going to give you my opinion on it first because it's, it's people will argue about it and they're wrong. Go, go. Um, <laughs> the, um, my, my belief is that, so we have a policy here at our company, Stakes, yeah, yeah. where we, um, we have 100% flexibility. So you can yeah. work any day of the week you want. You, everything is goals set. Okay. Mm. And along that same line, people have unlimited holiday. So mm. what that means is that we trust the team member to understand well enough how much time they can take off that's reasonable, when they need to take time off, when they don't need to take time off, and still be able to do their job. Okay. Yeah. So there is a risk, and I accept that with unlimited holiday, that people are afraid to take it mm. because they don't feel that actually it's acceptable because of the culture is let's do um yeah we're only do like 10 a, 10 a year or whatever mm. um because that's the culture and some people don't take a lot of holiday and if your manager doesn't take a lot or whatever and so but what we we try to do is we try to make sure the targets and the objectives are reasonable to the point where people feel they can take it off mm. weirdly and this is interesting last year we did some analysis the average across our company days holiday people took was 21 anyway which is right. about standard right yeah um so um but is well Go on, to, 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 to battle that yeah. one what was the variance like what was the least that someone took me yourself um, excluded oh, okay. don't count. oh yeah i did skew it there were there was a few there's quite a few people in the sort mm. of the 10 category got you yeah uh so it's, first of all you know that's opening up an issue for them secondly so you said oh on average people taking 21 but if i don't i think a lot of people see unlimited holiday and think a lot of holiday right yeah and ideology perfect practice i've just found like time and time again with this and other hr policies actually sometimes it is just easier to set clear expectations for people rather than to expect people to just kind of like feel what the right vibe is uh it's I agree just, with you, yeah and and also i mean empirical one to you uh is the intention within limited holiday policy I, certainly i think people would probably take it to mean this that people can take a lot of holiday or should take a lot of holiday. Yeah, exactly that. So I think with it now, first of all, I accept that we are in a hyper-privileged position because we have 35 employees, yeah. okay? I know every single one of those people very well. Mm -hmm. um, everyone who works here is very much falls into a specific character type yeah. because we have that kind of control when we bring them in and we have a very... Um, you select for it. Correct, you do. You select for that mentality. And so that fits very well with that, within the entire culture of our business, yeah. okay? That doesn't work at scale. You know, like uh, my previous business, when I left, we had 150 employees. You've got to bear in mind, and also within, and I agree with you there, you are in that at scale. Mm. There will be lots of people who just want to be told what to do. Yeah, mm. not everyone wants to take on themselves and say, look, 
I feel like I can do this. They don't necessarily have the courage to do that. They'll be like, well, okay, I've been told I have to take 20. Otherwise, five are going to carry over or whatever. Mm. Standard policies. And they want to be told that. They want someone else to instruct them, to lead them, to manage them towards that behavior. Mm. And they need to because otherwise they will just keep on working. Mm. Yeah, because they feel like, actually, maybe, maybe, you know, maybe I should only take like five because that's what makes you look good. Yeah. I worked at a bank at the beginning of my career. And, uh, (laughs) Holiday wasn't really a thing there. No. Yeah, not and I'm, really. I'm sure the 100 hours were typical. Pretty, pretty yeah, I'm genuinely I would um I would get to work if I got to work at a half 8, it was like a late start. Like it was 8 o'clock every day and I wouldn't leave until easily 8. Mm. Yeah, most days. Like and that was just that's Do just you think you were more productive than now? Uh no, I don't. I think I was miserable and and weirdly husband I was massively fat as well. Um <laughs> because I didn't have any time That's to do anything else. It's just yeah. what happens. It's, it's it's like misery weight. Yep. You know like it doesn't work and I think yeah anyone who mm. anyone who's a manager who's listening to a leader who's listening to this who thinks yep. that it's good culture to create a culture of ba 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 work really hard all the time you mm. idiots. Um no we're doing new thing this season where we talk about the startup sin bin things like things that you hate about the startup world that you wish just didn't exist anymore. I, I remember, this is relating to investors, startups. Uh, I read a great post the other day by um, Paddy from Odin relating to someone talking about VCs. Friend of the show. Yeah, friend it's of the show. I'm great, an investor in guy. Odin. I'm yeah, super big likewise, fan. Yeah, likewise. Yeah, great. Um, and he wrote a thing, it's like things about VC people don't talk about. And I think one thing that's so true that people forget um, is that VCs take management fees, right? So their, their returns are, are not symmetric, right? Their, their returns are asymmetric. The downside is that they only take this management fee. The upside is leveraged um by everyone else's money and their carry on that right uh so i find it when people say thing when venture investors say things like oh like why don't you swing for the fences it's like well your, your downside is kind of mitigated so <laughs> yeah nice yeah it's so true it's interesting no one really it's, it's as a founder you don't really understand like why is my vc constantly pressuring me to raise more money and spend more <laughs> and spend more money why are they doing it and it's like i don't really understand but then we'll talk about it on another show about why that is yeah Yeah, yeah, great thanks so much for coming on you've been amazing no problem thanks for having me